Well, welcome. We're glad to be back together uh, and hopefully over the next coming months more and more will be trickling in. We've been hearing, I've been hearing about people getting the vaccine and planning on coming back and those sorts of things. So it uh, should be fun to start welcoming a lot of folks back, although this is, this is a pretty healthy number right here this morning. Um, I meant to tell you I was remiss in not saying thank you uh, to, for our Christmas gift, the donation you gave before Christmas. I appreciate that. Um, the, we had all of our, you know, my, our daughters and my, my daughters and their husbands, we all got to go to Disney World. And not on the gift that you gave, uh, but, but we got to enjoy a nice meal while we were there. So we were, it was, it was great. So I appreciate, appreciate that. So just know that I didn't, don't take that for granted. All right, well, we're going to continue now with, uh, we're still in the life of Christ. Uh, and we're going to reach sort of a watershed moment, if you want to think of it that way at this point. We've been in the Galilean ministry, and a lot of people have been questioning Jesus. and under, you know, They've got an inkling of who he is or what's going on. They're, they're still trying to figure out, though, the whole nature of who he is. And what we're going to see in the lesson this morning, and it's, it's one that we're all probably familiar with, is, is now... Uh, sort of that high, sort of a high mark that Jesus now begins to help his disciples understand more and more fully the nature of his Messiahship. And we're going to see that through, you can see the outline, we're in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16. And the first part of the outline is Peter's profession, this great confession or profession that Jesus is the Christ. So we see, see through Peter this, this understanding now. Uh, and then right on the heels of that, we'll see Peter's um, presumption of him presuming to be able to tell the Messiah how, how his program should go, as we often are wont to do. Uh, this is a, the, the first part of this that's in chap, verse, I mean, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. It's a, a kind of a minefield of interpretations, and it has been especially since the Reformation. And you will find out why when we get in there, because it talks about Peter uh, being the rock, and on this rock, he will build. Jesus will build his church. And, of course, there's a lot of interpretive uh, schools of thought about what that is. This morning, what I'd like us to do is try to uh, pretend there's no Roman Catholic Church, there's no Protestant Church, there's been no Reformation. Uh, because in the context of when we read, that's indeed the case. Let's, let's just kind of hear what Peter and those around him would have heard, not having had the 2,000 years of church history that we now understand uh, and, and have gone through. So it's gonna, that's, that's the challenge for us this morning, to hear what it is. We know what Peter says to Jesus. That's easy to understand. But then, what does Jesus then tell Peter? And that is where you get into you know, a lot of disagreement about what is it that Jesus means by all of this. And I'm not going to say that we're all necessarily going to agree in this room uh, as to what it is that he means. But I think us kind of walking through it a little bit together will help us to maybe come to at least some consensus of, of what's happening here. All right, so we're in chapter... Uh, chapter 16 of, of Matthew, and we're told right away, before we read the verses, we're told right away that they go away to Caesarea Philippi. Now, what that means is they're leaving the region of the, the Sea of Galilee, 
and they, they, they head north about 25 miles out of Herod Antipas's realm in Galilee to Herod, Herod Philip, a another one of the Tetrarchs. And it's this Caesarea named after Caesar, but that, had, that Philip had bu built, so Philippi, that they've gone to up north. And it's predominantly a Gentile area. So what can happen now is that Jesus can get away with his disciples so that he can start hammering this out with them. Not as much uh, clamoring after Jesus since, they're in, since the, of the region that they're in. So with that having been said, let's read together aloud verses 13 through 20. Okay. Declare, declares that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked of his disciples, who do people say that the Son of God is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. But what, what about you, he asked. What do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I will tell you that you are Peter, and on the rock I will build my church, and on the gates of Hades I will overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Wherever you bind on earth, wherever you <coughs> will you bind in heaven. And whatever, and whatever you lose on earth, you will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. Say, question, I like to ask, is there much difference between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the Sadducees are so sad, is that why they're called that? <laughs> You're always bringing that joke up, Jay. Because <laughs> they're sad, you see. Sad. Yes, yeah, I knew you'd bring that up. <laughs> All right. So he gets them. Okay, so we're in the region. And then he, Jesus, is now going to prod, prod them with questions. There's been a lot of talk about who he is, uh, even to the point where, remember, some of the, uh, the people from Jerusalem, the Pharisees and scribes, had even identified him with uh, Beelzebub. You know, so that was not brought up. But, uh, so he asked, well, who, who do people... Uh, say that the Son of Man is. And of course, we've, we've already learned and talked about at length this, t this title, Son of Man, Jesus' reference for himself, uh, overtones from Daniel, but also identifying as, as a human. So they know who this is. In the parallel accounts um, in Mark and Luke, the question is just, who do people say that I am? But here you have uh, Matthew preserving that title that Jesus uses to reference himself. And here's their answers. Here's some of the answers. Uh, some say John the Baptist. Now that would be John the Baptist um, resurrected, come back to life, because John the Baptist has been beheaded already. Remember, this was also perhaps the, the opinion of, of Herod Antipas, that he said, this is John the Baptist come back. You know, that's what, kind of what made him nervous. So some others are saying, okay, well, some say you are John the Baptist, uh, come back to life. Others, Elijah. And of course, John the Baptist is identified with Elijah, 
as the forerunner to come in, in, in preparation for the Messiah. So some would say, well, you're the Elijah to come in preparation of the Messiah, which is, of course, what John the Baptist's role was. Still others, Jeremiah. Um, this is only in Matthew's account. It's not in Luke or Mark's account. You think, well, Jeremiah, well, you know, he did deliver some Jeremiads at times about Israel. You know, he, he was pretty forceful about what's going to come to Israel. But there was also sort of a legendary understanding that before the coming of the Messiah, Jeremiah would return. And this is in 2 Maccabees. If you're familiar with the Apocrypha, in 2 Maccabees, there's a story that Jeremiah, uh, before the Israel was taken into exile, he took the ark and the, 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 the altar of incense and hid them. Uh, and in preparation for, and the understanding is that when the Messiah is to return, Jeremiah would return and bring back those articles and once again establish the glory of Israel. So there's, there's that understanding. So notice they're, they're all positive in that sense as to what people are thinking. There isn't, you know, they, people are awaiting the Messiah. They've been talking about this for a long time. They know that there is to be a Messiah. They don't know exactly, though. So here they're all saying, well, in many ways, many see you as the precursor to, the forerunner of, something that is signaling the coming of the Messiah. And then said, and some would even go so far as to just say, well, you're, you're one of the other prophets. So something that has to do with the Messiah, but not the Messiah. That he who would come in advance of the Messiah. So people are wondering, and that's what, they, that's what the disciples have told them. Here's what people are saying. So then, though, he narrows it. And, of course, uh, here's, this is what leads to Peter's profession or confession. But you, who do you say that I am? What about you? Okay, that's what other people are saying. But you, who do you say that I am? I don't know if you're translation preserves it, but that's really what we've got. We've got you twice in the Greek. But you, who do you say? It's not just the one. Well, guess who the mouthpiece is for the disciples? Guess who steps forward? Yes, our favorite, right? Peter steps forward, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're not one to come in advance of the Messiah. We believe you to be, I know you to be, the Messiah, the anointed. Christ is the, from the Greek version of the same Hebrew term, Messiah, the anointed king. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that all the signs have pointed towards. We believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, of course, there was an understanding that the Messiah would, in a special way, be a son of the Father. How much Peter knew at this point of the, like, the Trinitarian understanding of Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, we don't know. That seems to have been developed. They learn this more and more over time. But everyone would understand the coming king, the anointed Messiah, as the son from royal psalms and from and from, you know, talking about the, the king who's going to be on David's throne, and he would be a son to me. So there's, there's that. But there's probably a little more than that going on, too, because we're told that 
Jesus says, well, God bless you, Peter. You know, blessed art thou. Yeah, God bless you, Peter, because you didn't learn this from books. This is not something that, you know, yes, you, you have an inkling, but you know this because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. Not flesh and blood, which is a, an idiom for, for people. Not, you didn't learn this from man's knowledge. You know this by revelation from my Father, and God bless you for, for understanding this, believing this. Now, how is Peter still got more to learn? Well, yeah, he's got a lot more to learn, as do all of the rest of the disciples. In fact, the next episode, which we'll look at this morning, shows how much Peter has to learn. He still doesn't know the full-orbed understanding of what Jesus means by his Messiahship. Peter and the rest still have all of the accretion over the centuries of what the Messiah would be. More of a, you know, a conqueror, someone to come and unite Israel against the pagans and reestablish the glory of Israel and bring about peace on earth through that. Now they have to learn what that's going to look like. That's part of the reason at the end of this episode that Jesus told them, don't tell anyone. It's not that he's afraid. It's just that who knows what they're going to say, too. Part of it is they, they still don't have a full enough understanding of his messiahship, of him being the king, for them to even be able to talk as much about what it means for Jesus to be this king. Now, there are other reasons, but that's one of them, because now he has to help them understand the nature of this messiahship. It's not something that they would ever have looked for. And that's why Peter is so shocked. In just a moment, we'll read that. So that's his profession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And so here we have this, this the beginning of what everybody now who claims to be a member of the household of Jesus Christ, that congregation of Jesus, the new Israel, the church, must profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, Lord. So here you have this initial confession, profession, because that works with the P that I needed in the second part of the outline. So that's why. Um, so. Jesus then says, well, you have declared who I am. Now, I'm going to tell you who you are. And so he begins with what we just talked about already. God bless you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, uh, son of Jonah. Could be a, probably a shortened version of John because we're told in John, in chapter 1 of John, that, that Peter is son of John. So there's probably something going on there. Some would say that he's equating him kind of spiritually with Jonah, uh, you know, a, a prophet. But I, I think right here it's just probably a shortened version of John um, because the Father has revealed this to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter. All right, so far so good. You are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And there, and then we start talking about keys to the kingdom and what you loose and bind will have been loosed and binded in heaven. Whoa, here's where we jump into the interpretive deep waters, all right? 
Uh, most of us know, or you should know, that this is taken as one of the sort of germinating texts for the office of the Pope in Roman Catholic theology. That Peter, as Bishop of Rome, he was, he was established here as this person who holds the keys to the kingdom, and hence the Roman Catholic Church as the dispenser of grace, and the Pope being Christ's vicar on earth, and that that succession of bishops of Rome being the Pope. And this is taken as sort of a foundational verse for that. Question. Is that the, fore, that the forerunner of the papacy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yes. Very good. Now, of course, since the Reformation, given that that was the predominant understanding of this text, but then the Reformation, of course, the rejection of that type of papal authority, there have been interpreted attempts to interpret this, well, this can't be talking about Peter. This must be something else. And the way that's done is by looking at the Greek for the name Peter and for rock, which, he's used, which Matthew uses here. Now, if, as most speculate, Jesus was talking in Aramaic to his disciples, which seems to be the, the, the language of just their common parlance, there is no separate words for Peter or for rock. It's just Kepha, Cephas, Peter's name, Cephas, Kepha. And there would have been no distinction. But Matthew, in writing it in Greek, uses two different Greek words. The first, uh, Peter, he says, you are Peter, that is Petros, P-E-T-R-A-S, Petros. It's a fit, that's, a, uh, that's a masculine noun. Uh, because Peter's a man, see? Uh, so it's, you've got a masculine noun there. And then the word for rock, and upon this rock I will build, that's Petra. You've probably heard of that term before, Petra. Uh, that's a feminine noun. And what folks will say is that, well, what you have here is, notice there are two different things. There's, he is Peter, little rock, like a stone, like there's, there's you know, he's, He's got that going for him. But upon this larger rock, this edifice, the Petra, I will build my church. And, and some would say that's Peter's confession. The confession that Jesus is the Christ. And, I, you know, and of course, you know, that, that confession is foundational. Um, but that is an attempt to get around the understanding that this is a reference to the papacy that this is a reference to the Pope. So if we can say that he's really not calling Peter foundational in that sense, then we don't have to worry about the Roman Catholic declaration that you see here, he's saying that Peter is. I think we can probably, however, remember, what I wanted us to do is just go back, what would they have heard before Roman Catholicism, before any Protestant Reformation? What would they have heard? Well, I think they would have heard Jesus saying exactly what he said. And, and Peter, you know your name is Rock, right? You're, Pe you're Peter, Rock. And, the, you know, it's on this rock that I'm going to build my church. Now, when he says church here, this is one of only three times in the Gospels the word church is used. All three are used in Matthew. And a full-ordered understanding of church is not intended at this point. The, church, the word had been used before, and it has to do with a fellowship around a cause.
a gathering. So it's, he's, he's saying, look, you, as the first one to do this, are now foundational to the entire structure that will be built of followers of me. You are foundational to this. And I don't think we as Protestants need to be embarrassed by that. We're not claiming that Peter through that is the Pope. We're, we're, we're recognizing that he was a leader. He was an early leader, and I think Jesus meant what he said. Now, this idea of foundation and building the church as a building is used throughout the New Testament, and it's rather fluid, actually, in, in many of its implications. Uh, Paul um, talks about the fact that Jesus is the foundation in 1 Corinthians, Jesus' foundation, and he's building on that foundation. But wait a minute, Jesus says he's building. You see what I mean? So it's, 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 there's a lot of fluidity. Uh, he also, Paul also in Ephesians talks about the fact that the church, the foundation is the prophets and the apostles. Uh, Peter talks about that we are that building, built on that foundation with Jesus as the cornerstone. So I want you to see that there's some fluidity. The, the, the actual image of the church as a building, I think, is beautiful. But it's, it's nuanced in several ways throughout your New Testament. And here we have Peter as foundational, not as if he is the, the actual cornerstone of the church or the foundation of the church, but he is foundational in many ways. As we read through the book of Acts, that's confirmed, that Peter is indeed foundational. And notice we're told that this gathering of God's people under the banner of Jesus Christ, this church, the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Doesn't sound as fun as gates of hell, right? You know, Hades, I wanted it to be hell. Um, but it is Hades. And in both canonical Jewish literature, non-canonical Jewish literature, and in pagan literature, where Greek is used, or these images are used, you have gates of Hades as representing the power of death. So it, in, he, this could be, he could be saying in many ways, my church, A, will not die. Will, it will not go away. From here on out, there will be this thing that today we call the church. Uh, we know that the power of Hades could not hold him, eventually. Death could not hold him. And we know that death does not hold individual members as well. So the power of death will not prevail against this. And now we have these weird, this, he gives him keys to the kingdom and then he says, what you loose will be loosed. What you bind will be bound. That, you know, people say, there you go, see the Pope right there. That's, that's a lot of Roman Catholic theologians. But um, in other places, Jesus critiques the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for basically not, not letting people into the kingdom and withholding the key of the knowledge of the true nature of his messiahship. He critiques them for withholding the keys. And I think what we have here with Peter's is Jesus telling him, and you're going to be able to open this door to the kingdom for so many. You have that power. And of course, we do see that he does. His proclamation of the gospel does indeed 
fling open the doors and you see Jews and Gentiles rushing in. So, sure. At least that's my, my take. And then the understanding of loosing and binding. Those are rabbinic terms for permitting, loose, permit, and bind to forbid. That you, you Peter, are going to be foundational in this. And as this church grows, a lot of the decisions you're going to make are going to be binding. And we find that as well or in, the, in the early church in Acts, that a lot of what Peter does and the rest of the disciples, that this is true. Just a few chapters later, he's, Jesus is going to talk to them about how to, how to actually exercise this when we talk about discipline in the church. And we see this particular role focused on church discipline. And the idea of loosening and binding is used there as well. So, I don't think we need to be as afraid of this. I think we should allow Jesus to be telling Peter that he is the rock. And that rock is foundational. Now, things are going to change, right, as the church progresses. And that role then goes to the rest of the church as well in various ways. But I think we do a disservice to the text if we don't realize that what we do as a church matters. There is a binding and loosing that will have happened and decreed in heaven, as he says. We're not just a loose association of like-minded people coming together for a little country club time. What we do matters as a church, and God has intended it to be so. Now, of course, there's much more to learn about this, and they have much more to learn about the nature of Jesus' Messiahship. Hence, keep it on the down low for right now. But imagine... Peter hearing this. I mean, he's already got the nickname, and now the nickname is given, you're Peter, and boy, you have a role to play. And we all know about Peter, right? And how cool is that, that this guy who is in so many ways foundational is so flawed, like us. You know what I mean? There's so many things that he has to learn and grow through. Um, which is encouraging in so many ways. Yes, sir. I, I recall that the Old Testament references to the Holy Spirit are frequently feminine. Uh, could it be that what be referred to is actually the Holy Spirit working with Peter to reveal who Jesus really is? That is being talked about being the foundation for the church and the basis by which the church then will work? So the role of the Holy Spirit working through Peter, Peter. yeah. I think that's got to be part of it. Yeah. You bet. Excellent. What other questions? Yes, ma'am. I just have a comment that we always think of Paul as being the apostle to the Gentiles. But it was really pretty soon after Paul's conversion, before Paul really got going, that Peter had the vision of that all that no one no food was unclean and peter is called to baptize the gentile uh cornelius, cornelius yeah. and peter says um i now realize how true it is that god does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right and uh then while peter was speaking uh, in verse 44 
The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. And we talked about that when we studied Acts, calling that the Gentile Pentecost. So it was really Peter who was opening the door to the Gentiles. And that in so many ways, and his role at the council in Jerusalem, too, to speak up for that as well. Yeah, good stuff. By the way, you notice the clock is no longer on the wall. <laughs> you thought I did that. That's the old joke, right? You know, you, you, when the pastor does this, does this, do you know what that means? No. Nothing. There you go. That's what that means. <laughs> yeah, it means nothing. There you go. So the clock not being on the wall. Well, it's been wrong for so long, right? It's been so, what the heck? I don't even know. All right. Well, him telling them not to say anything, of course, they have much to learn, as we're going to learn right now from Peter. They have much to learn about what this is. Plus, you know, there's a danger of this whole nationalistic thing taking over. And there's a danger of uh, things happening to get in the way of the cross, which is now what they're going to learn. Because now that they have made this declaration, Peter on behalf of the disciples, making this proclamation, you are the one we've been waiting for. You are God's chosen. You are the Messiah. You are the King. Now, kind of Jesus kind of takes off the gloves, if you want to think of it that way. He's spoken about the nature of his Messiahship and that it will lead to the cross. A little, he's done that already, some, but it's been more cryptic. Now, it's open. He just tells them, here is what's going to happen. And to someone like Peter, having just said, you're the Messiah, and hearing his privileged role and responsibility, he now hears the Messiah tell him things that, whoa, what? How's this going to work out? You're kidding, right? And so let's hear this episode in verses 21 through 23. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Mm. Peter is the recipient of so much personal love from Jesus. And he is the recipient of some of the harshest rebukes as well. And he, he's foundational. So, we hear, now to us, again, we're 2,000 years, we know. We know that the, the reason Jesus came was to represent his people, die our death. The cross was inevitable, not just as a consequence. He wasn't a martyr. This was the purpose for them, however, to hear this is shocking. So when he tells them, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And by the way, that's where we're going from here on. We're, we're going to slowly start heading to Jerusalem in our lessons as we follow Christ. That he must suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes. Basically the Sanhedrin, the ruling, the ruling body. 
that he is going to suffer at their hands and be killed. And then raised the third day. Well, Peter understands the killed part. I don't think he understands the raised part yet. Remember, they, 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 they're going to struggle with that one until it actually happens. You're like, oh, yes, you meant that. This wasn't literary. This was literal. But the killing part, Peter obviously understands, hence his rebuke. He's not thinking this is figurative. Killed? Suffered and killed? He gets it, at least on that level. Hence, his presumption. That's the outline point. He presumes to tell the one who he's just declared as the Messiah how to be the Messiah. Whoa! Um, but lest we get too critical, um, I think we often are guilty of that, trying to help God know how to do his job, uh, thinking we know what Jesus must have meant. Well, he couldn't have meant what he actually said. I think he probably meant, and that's the history of, you know, our, our modern biblical interpretation for the most part. What he must have meant was. So you get Peter now going from being, saying, Jesus saying, actually God revealed this to you, not men, to now being told, you're not even thinking about the things of God, you're thinking just like men. It's just flip-flopped with just right there, back to back. And from being called the rock to being called a stumbling stone. Scandalon in the Greek. You are a scandal to me, a stumbling stone. And he, I, I don't know, this was, had to have been, but you see, but Peter's sort of, you know, he's well-intentioned. He, he says, have mercy. So that's kind of the word there, mercy on you. Have mercy. This, this, no, this won't happen. To which Jesus now, either you can read it as Jesus turns away, or Jesus turns towards him. Either way, we're told he turns. Um, and either way, it has its own kind of impact, right? Either way. But he tells him, get behind me. Satan. You adversary. That's what the word Satan means. It's adversary. Here, but it's the Satan. And it's... It's the same temptation that Satan had laid before Jesus early in his ministry. Basically, the temptations were, oh yeah, you can have your kingdom, just go, but don't go through this whole cross stuff. The kingdom without the cross. To go through, you can have what you want right now. You don't have to go through all of that. Well, Peter, in his own understanding, the understanding of men would say, you don't know. You can't go through that. You're the Messiah. Hence the rebuke. Jesus saying to Peter, you are a stumbling block at this point. Because this can't be easy for Jesus as well to know what he's got to do. And we'll see that later, of course, as the cross gets closer and closer. But he must be obedient. I think we can be sure when anyone reinterprets the Messiahship of Jesus to eliminate the cross... When the cross is seen as a mistake or just sort of a figurative thing that shows God's love, but not a real death with redemptive, redemptive um, effects, I think you can be sure that we hear the voice of Satan again.
Satan, Jesus saying, get behind me. Because that is a stumbling block. And the cross will be a stumbling block for the Jews. It is a stumbling block for them. And it eventually, Peter's role is going to be to help them get over that stumbling block of the cross. Which right now, Jesus calls him. So again, we see that wonderful work that God does eventually through Peter. Now, the rest of this passage has to do with, by the way, you're going to follow me in this, this whole suffering bit. And he talks about the nature of discipleship. We've looked at that already in another passage. That's why I'm it's going to end with that. So we go from his profession to his presumption. Yes, sir? What I, I have no idea what I said, but I'll try to <laughs> re, 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 uh, redo, redux. Yeah. Um, that idea that there, what the church does has impact. That there is, that I think we're, I could have gotten into some of the, uh, the Greek there, these future passive participles, that it says, what you bind basically, will have been bound. What you loose will have been loosed. Binding meaning what? Oh, binding meaning um, forbid, loosing meaning permit. And then when we see in, sorry, that was the rabbinic sort of understanding. It's rabbinic terms for that. And then we see in later in Matthew talking about church discipline that what you have now permitted or did not permit with discipline basically you know, churching someone is what we used to call it, right? To forbid them from the fellowship. He says that has binding effect. Does that help? Some? <laughs> Some? Yeah, there's... We, of course, God's sovereignty, are, are, have trouble... No, are we dictating what God does? Is that, you know, that's kind of one of the sticklers right here. And that's why I think the Greek tenses help in that it says, will have been done, meaning there's some sort of... And again, we can't explain it all, this idea of our actions and God's sovereignty. But somehow there is a working together of those that doesn't belittle or marginalize our, what we do, while at the same time not removing God from his sovereign position. Um, I, I can't fully unpack all that myself in my mind. Yes, sir? Verse 22 uh illustrates how Peter was exercising his new authority as key holder. You know, he didn't want his friend to be hurt, so he said, okay, I have the keys, I'm going to bind that <laughs> and loose this other, which illustrates how when we were at the pinnacle of our success, Satan comes in to correct Very good, him. yeah. And I think that's, what, I think that's why yeah. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because Satan was telling Peter, well, don't let that happen. Right, yeah. We have the keys. Oh, good. Yeah. Keys to the kingdom. Well, all right. They're going to come and kick us out here in a sec. And maybe we'll have a clock next week. I don't know. But it won't matter either way. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for our time together and for the, the fact that we get to be here and to study your word. Our prayer is that through this study... Uh, we don't just leave it in our heads, but that uh, we then go forward 
to be the people you've called us to be. Thanks as well uh, that uh, we live when we do, where we do, um, that uh, there are so many things that uh, are blessings that we don't recognize. Forgive us when we turn our blessings into burdens. Our prayer is that we live as a blessed, thankful, forgiven, loving people. In the name of Jesus, our King, the Messiah. Amen. Very good. Very good presentation. Don't get sick again. That's an order. It's an order. <laughs> Don't get sick. Bye, podcast people. <laughs>